Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash RSW. Supported by an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Welcome to this multidisciplinary panel discussion on chronic kidney disease and heart failure. This activity comprises three presentations featuring Professors Sarah Jarvis, David Cherney, and Pardeep Jund. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Dr Sarah Jarvis, a family doctor in the United Kingdom. Welcome, a very warm welcome to this panel discussion on changing patient trajectories in chronic kidney disease and heart failure. Now we are truly international but not just multi-country. We are multidisciplinary as well today. Joining me in this discussion are my colleagues, David Cherney, a nephrologist from the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada, and Pardeep Jund, a cardiologist from the University of Glasgow in the United Kingdom. So what are we hoping to achieve today? Well, first, we are hoping to show and I'm hoping if you're with us that perhaps you know this already, but we really want to demonstrate that early recognition for CKD and heart failure is crucial because that means early intervention and early intervention can really change the trajectory of patient disease. But we need to do more than that. We need to recognize that there are barriers, but hopefully we will not only be able to highlight the barriers, but more importantly, to highlight some of the solutions. And then finally, we want to talk about collaboration. As I say, we are a multidisciplinary team, but the importance of collaboration between primary care physicians, nephrologists and cardiologists has never been greater. And we want to think about how we can advocate together for our patients. So David, let me come to you first and ask, what's your role in identifying and indeed managing CKD? Yeah, thanks for the question. So uh, for nephrology, I think the importance of uh, screening is a key role for nephrologists uh, and screening according to local guidelines on a regular basis especially making sure that GFR and albuminuria are checked on a regular basis, in addition to other traditional risk factors and thinking about other risk factors, for example, in people with diabetes or, and or those with hypertension. And then beyond the screening is the identification of those at higher risk or who have indications for new therapies. And to use those new, new therapies in a safe and effective way, those can include uh, first-line therapies, uh, uh, RAS inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, for example, and other first-line therapies, according to disease etiology, and then all of the therapies that we're now layering on top of first-line therapies, GLP-1 receptor agonists, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, etc., to make sure that we add all the pillars of therapy that we can when patients have an indication for these new agents. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, as you say, starting with screening, the real key is thinking about which patients might be at high risk and then doing something about yep. it. And I think that, of course, is where perhaps we come in in primary care mostly. But Pardeep, I'm going to come to you. Why is your role in managing heart failure so important? Well, I think my role is very similar to David's in that I'm there to try and 
find if the patient has heart failure. Making a diagnosis is often one of the most difficult things about heart failure, especially some of the different forms of heart failure, given the multitudes of symptoms that patients have, which may be due to other diseases. So trying to disentangle that and make the diagnosis is perhaps the first biggest step. And then providing access to those therapies that we know are beneficial in heart failure and disease modifying drugs and therapies, including devices and more advanced therapies, are part of my role, ensuring that the patient gets exactly what they need and when they need it. And then also linking in with a wider multidisciplinary team, which we now all work in in heart failure, as well as all of the other specialists that are involved in a patient with heart failure's care, such as primary care physicians and other secondary care specialists such as David if they have problems with their kidneys. But in the meantime I'm going to come back to you if I may David. It kind of sounds pretty simple doesn't it? You know you identify patients at high risk and you screen them with very simple tools, blood tests and urinalysis. But we're not very good at doing it are we? No unfortunately not. They're still has a lot of room to go in terms of making sure that we adhere to guidelines around screening, never mind the therapy, uh, which is an additionally complicated area. So just in terms of screening, we know that patients often don't uh, have uh, adequate diagnostic workup when there is a reason to look for underlying chronic kidney disease. There are many studies that have shown this. One is the Reveal CKD uh, study, which uh, looked at uh, underdiagnosed uh, stage three chronic kidney disease across countries in uh, in North America and in Europe. And, and this study and others have shown that more than 50% of patients uh, are underdiagnosed in terms of having stage uh, 3A uh, uh, CKD diagnosed. And so this is uh, critical because without a proper diagnosis, it's impossible to implement new therapies. Uh, and this underdiagnosis was especially common in certain subgroups, including uh, patients who are older uh, and women and uh, those with, um, with relatively preserved kidney function um, just below the uh, threshold with a GFR of less than 60. So these are particularly high-risk groups where we have to focus some of our attention. Because there is a huge impact, isn't there? There absolutely is. So even early chronic kidney disease has a significant impact on on uh, cardiovascular risk and on mortality. And we know that there is a continuous relationship between kidney function impairment with cardiovascular disease risk and mortality. And similarly, with even lower levels of albuminuria within the, uh, within the um, uh, A2 or A3 range, and even within the A1 range in higher levels of so-called normal albuminuria is even associated with higher cardiovascular risk and mortality. And we know that that worldwide chronic kidney disease results in an excess of more than 1 million deaths and is now one of the 12, one of the uh, top 12 leading causes of death. And in addition to that, an, uh, approximately one and a half million deaths from cardiovascular disease were attributable to impaired kidney function worldwide. So these are uh, major issues from a public health perspective um, and in terms of uh, quality uh, of years uh, of life uh, lost and in terms of the uh, burden that patients suffer. So these are major public health issues. So who should be screening? Yeah, so I think the job of screening uh, starts in, in primary care. 
um, uh, but also should be considered by specialists. And so screening has to be done by endocrinologists who see, for example, large volumes of people with diabetes. And similarly, screening uh, should be done in cardiovascular practice where there are patients with heart failure or patients with other yeah. cardiovascular risk factors. And I think more and more albuminuria is being thought of as a cardiovascular disease uh, risk factor, both for atherosclerosis and for heart failure related complications. And it's, it's always interesting to see how, how albuminuria is now being used much more in cardiovascular practice to identify those patients at higher risk. So I think it's, it's all of our jobs to screen, but of course, the first step is often in primary care where these patients are initially thought of and identified as being higher risk. Now, thinking of doing urine albumin creatinine ratio, of course, the KDIGO heat map makes it quite clear that people are at different risks, depending not just on their EGFR, but also, of course, on their level of albuminuria, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So this is sort of a, a, a composite risk score in terms of the not only the GFR, but also the albuminuria. And it's helpful because um, it, it can tell clinicians and patients, indeed, where their risk is, according to the heat map that's included in the guideline. And in addition to that, there are um, additional schemas that have used the risk categorization to not only identify risk and prognosis, but also to have a clinically actionable um, uh, uh, result of that KDGO heat map, which is that how often should patients be seen? Should they be seen once a year, perhaps, in, in, in a patient who's in the green or, or yellow area, twice a year, perhaps, in, or three times a year, or even more in patients with more advanced CKD, especially as they, uh, as they progress to CKD stage uh, four and are at much higher risk of needing dialysis in the shorter term. So let's then think about heart failure. So Pardeep, are we recognizing patients who are at risk of heart failure? Well, I think we are, Sarah. I think we have always recognized that there are many patients who are at risk of developing heart failure. And indeed, if you look at the US North American guidelines for the treatment of heart failure and the diagnosis of heart failure, they also recognize this. And put patients into what they call various stages. So stage A are patients who are at risk of heart failure. So they have classical risk factors for heart failure that we all recognize, hypertension, diabetes, uh, obesity, ischemic heart disease. And we know that many of these patients will go on to develop heart failure. But what their guidelines recognize now is that there's a stage just before you develop overt heart failure called pre-heart failure or stage B heart failure, where you start to have I suppose, manifestations of cardiac dysfunction, uh, but without the signs and symptoms that make the diagnosis of heart failure. So a good example would be the patient who's had a myocardial infarction who has an abnormal left ventricle because they have left ventricular systolic dysfunction because a part of their myocardium has died, but they don't have any signs and symptoms of heart failure. They have what we call asymptomatic left ventricular systolic dysfunction. We recognize that that's a, a stepping stone on the way to developing heart failure. And again, those patients need to be treated as aggressively as the patients with heart failure to hopefully prevent them developing full heart failure or what they call in the guideline stage C heart failure. But of course, the, the, the main thing is making that diagnosis as we talked about earlier, Sarah, and, uh, and then trying to think about what we do with those patients. 
So all of these different uh, patient groups have been used, uh, have been defined by a cutoff and ejection fraction. But really, I think the heart failure world is moving away slightly from this ejection fraction centric uh, idea of defining heart failure um, because we really recognize that we now have therapies that are beneficial for all patients with heart failure. They all have the same syndrome. They all have the same risk of, um, of adverse outcomes, recurrent hospitalizations, and they have many of the shared risk factors. And we have, for a long time, um, struggled, especially with this group called preserved ejection fraction heart failure, because they are the ones who tend to have lots of other comorbidities, especially type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and they tend to be underdiagnosed um, because their symptoms are often attributed to their other comorbidities. Um, so we're working very hard to get those patients in, into the cardiology clinics now. I'm really glad you mentioned that because, of course, having it a high index of suspicion about heart failure is important, but it's not the whole story, is it? And in fact, in my experience, it's not enough, even if you do ask are you short of breath when you exercise? Do you have swelling of your ankles? Do you get short of breath when you lie down? Because actually the patient will often say no. What you need to do is think about that because now we have, as I've said, therapies that are beneficial for the entire range of patients with heart failure that we can start very early on in the treatment, such as SGLT2 inhibitors, which have been a, a real revelation in the treatment of heart failure over the last couple of years because we now have this therapy that can uh, treat our patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure, something we've not had before. So I'm really glad that you've mentioned that because I do think it's a very key point. Not only do we now have treatments such as, as you say, the SGLT2 inhibitors that are indicated right across the spectrum of ejection fraction, but of course, we they will also very often help that same patient because they are at high risk of or have CKD as well. And of course, you know, they do, as we well know now, protect people against CKD. Absolutely. So, uh, and what's so interesting about the foundational uh, use of uh, SGLT2 inhibitors is not only that they're they're on the same sort of order of implementation as, as metformin and, and ARAS inhibitor and high intensity statin, but also the level of GFR at which we can use them down to. So, these therapies are now used across a very wide spectrum of CKD to reduce uh, renal risk, but also to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, heart failure, in addition to the metabolic and, and other uh, pleiotropic effects of these medications. So yes, uh, foundational care and down to a lower GFR based on available data that we now have with SGLT2 inhibitors. But let's think about foundational therapies for heart failure, if I may, Pardeep. Right, well, as we've said Sarah and as David and, and, and you have said you know many of these therapies overlap so you will see in the therapies for heart failure we have many of the therapies that are also good for patients with type 2 diabetes or patients with chronic kidney disease uh, not just the SGLT2 inhibitors that we've talked about but uh, blockers of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system so now I think heart failure has moved away from a sequential approach to therapy to this much more we have foundations that we need to lay and that we need to get the patient onto all of these different drugs, give them the best possible chance. And we have lots of things to do for our patients 
with reduced ejection fraction heart failure, but those are the foundations, these four drug RNAs, beta blockers, MRAs and SGLT2 inhibitors. So I think it's fair to say that we are at a critical juncture of managing CKD and heart failure and primary care finds itself right at the forefront. Absolutely. And in fact, when the cardiologists got their hands on SGLT2 inhibitors, we looked to our primary care physicians to help us make the the initiation of these drugs because you'd been using them for so long with patients with diabetes, you're much more comfortable with them than heart failure doctors were. So I think you're absolutely right. They're almost a almost a bit like fire and forget. You know, you can yeah. you can you can put the patient on them. You don't really need to do very much with them. And then you can concentrate on all of those other therapies and put your efforts into up titrating an RNA or up titrating a beta blocker because these are crucial steps. It's uh, those drugs you really want to get the dose up as high as you can for the patients. And of course, just finally, worth pointing out that we are talking about patients both with and without type 2 diabetes for the SGLT2s now, um, which I think is really crucial. Yeah. And the other, just I'm going to jump in there for one second, just the other thing that sort of distinguishes these therapies in terms of the fire and forget is the is the uh, the issue of uh, that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors reduce the risk of AKI and reduce the risk of hyperkalemia. With a comment as helpful as that, you can jump in any time you want, David. <laughs> so primary care practitioners will be doing the vast majority of screening, I think it's fair to say. So what role do we have? Whose patient is it anyway? Just last thoughts. Better communication needed, I think. Agreed. And uh, in terms of the, the, the roles, I think it's a shared role. And one of the, I think, most useful approaches to using these therapies is that because we're all becoming comfortable using them and have experience with them and also have these patients in our practices, that the first, uh, the first physician or practice to see a patient and identify a need or an indication for one of these therapies should start it first and, of course, keep our colleagues in the loop and, and keep our colleagues informed with, with, uh, with clinical communication to make sure that we all know why the patient's being started on this therapy and what the indication is and also what we're doing in terms of monitoring and follow-up. Paddy, last word to you. No, well, it's all I can say is I agree with everything that's been said. It's really a partnership. And I think uh, David mentioned something which I think is critical, actually, if we really are to change the trajectory and the prognosis of these patients start it or seek some help to start it if they don't feel comfortable doing that by themselves. But I think that is the way that we really start making a headway into changing the trajectory of these patients who have CKD or heart failure um, or at risk factors for, for, for these two very deadly conditions. What a great note on which to end our first session. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. And we very much hope that you will join us for our next session. Hello, I'm Dr. Sarah Jarvis, a family doctor in the United Kingdom. Welcome to this second part of our panel discussion on changing patient trajectories in chronic kidney disease and heart failure. We have a multidisciplinary and a multi-country, indeed a global panel today. I'm delighted to be joined in this discussion by my colleagues, David Cherney, who is a nephrologist from the University of Toronto in Toronto, and Pardeep Jund, who is a cardiologist from the University of Glasgow in Glasgow in the United Kingdom. Now, 
When we talk about changing the trajectory of CKD or heart failure and the role of foundational therapies, you kind of might think we're describing an ideal world because actually we've been here before. We've had the ACE inhibitors and they were first developed for hypertension. They then moved on and they became it became abundantly clear how effective they could be in improving outcomes in heart failure and in CKD. But the problem we've got is that things are not necessarily all well in paradise. I have to say, I was stunned, probably horrified actually, that as recently as 2019, only 25% of patients with type 2 diabetes with CKD and hypertension were using ACE inhibitors and ARBs. That means 75% of these patients weren't. So, you know, we know that they're very effective for controlling hypertension, but we know they have additional role in CKD, and yet the majority of patients were not using them. So clearly there are barriers, even today, but we don't like being problem-focused. We like being solution-focused. So let's just think then about the excuse me, SGLT2s. They were first developed for type 2 diabetes, but things have moved on, David. Absolutely. So we first uh, saw dedicated kidney outcome uh, trials with the Credence trial in people with type 2 diabetes and uh, albuminuria with a GFR of essentially 30 and above um, with a three level of albuminuria and uh, showed reductions in both the primary outcome and in uh, both cardiovascular and specific kidney outcomes. And the second trial, which uh, was completed in people with and without type 2 diabetes, was the DAPA-CKD trial, which kind of built on what we knew from Credence and from the cardiovascular outcome trials, all of which showed benefits in people with type 2 diabetes. And in the DAPA-CKD trial, there were uh, similar benefits in people with and without type 2 diabetes, kind of ultimately proving that there are glucose-independent benefits with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And those benefits were consistent across subgroups of patients, which you can see on the slide, um, which, which emphasized the consistency of the benefit with the SGLT2 inhibitors. And importantly, in DAPA-CKD, patients were uh, recruited down to a GFR of 25, which was at that time uh, the lowest uh, limit in terms of the renal outcome trials. And in the AMPA kidney trial, which was just uh, published within the last few months, um, more than two-thirds of patients had non-diabetic kidney disease in that trial. And the benefits, again, were consistent in people with and without diabetes, which was aligned with the results from DAPA-CKD, um, but really very consistent results across a range of different risk factors. So beyond the results of the specific trials, such as Credence and DAPA-CKD, as well as Empikidney, we're now fortunate to have a large meta-analyses that have been completed from across these different trials in the SGLT2 inhibitor field, including more than 90,000 patients uh, with either atherosclerosis-related risk factors or established disease, a heart failure background, or with chronic kidney disease, and importantly, um, across those trials involving 13 trials with those 90,000 patients, um, we can see that there are benefits across a wide range of patients with different etiologies of CKD, including diabetic kidney disease, ischemic or hypertensive nephropathy, glomerular-based diseases, and other, uh, and other uh, causes of CKD. 
And those benefits across those different etiologies are actually very consistent, demonstrating and reinforcing the message that the benefits with the SGLT2 inhibitors are both consistent across different patient groups, but also that these benefits are independent of glycemic control, as shown especially in patients without diabetes. So let's just move on, Pardeep, then, and think about heart failure, because, of course, we have a wide range of patients with heart failure, and patients with heart failure come with and without type 2 diabetes as well. So are we seeing the same benefits across all subgroups in patients with heart failure with the SGLT2s? That's a great question, Sarah, and we're very lucky in the heart failure field to have four large randomised outcomes trials in patients with heart failure two of which were in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, so that's an ejection fraction of 40% or below, and two in patients with mildly reduced or preserved ejection fraction, so that's above 40%, so the rest of the population with heart failure. And we can see in a meta-analysis of these uh, patients and the characteristics of the patients enrolled in these trials that that fits with what we know about the, the epidemiology of heart failure. Heart failure with preserved or mildly reduced ejection fraction tends to occur in patients who are older. And also, as we saw in those trials, more often uh, affects women than heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So the preserved ejection fraction trials are more evenly split between men and women, whereas the reduced ejection fraction trials had a majority of men in them. But as you correctly mentioned, Sarah, these trials had patients who had diabetes and patients who did not have type 2 diabetes. In fact, actually, the majority of patients did not have type 2 diabetes. And if we go and look on and see what happened when we put the results of all of these trials together, you can see very consistent benefits in terms of reducing cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization in the patients in the reduced ejection fraction trial and the mildly reduced and preserved ejection fraction trials. So we saw a very consistent message, very very much like we saw with CKD uh, just a moment ago when David took us through, that the, the treatment effect of SGLT2 inhibitors is very, very consistent across all of these different patients and, and, and also patients with and without type 2 diabetes. So subgroups, uh, all the subgroups that you can think of, older people, men, women, uh, according to their BNP level. And, uh, you know, that, that was really heartening to see very low numbers needed to treat as well. Um, and, and, and just, you know, very, very convincing evidence that we had four big, large trials of many thousands of patients showing very consistent benefits. So I don't think there's any um, thoughts that these were chance or fluke or um, just happen to be, um, you know, very, very consistent findings. Um, I think that's that's really made a fundamental difference, perhaps, to, you know, how we think in primary care. Yes, you're absolutely right, Sarah. We constantly struggle with kidney function and treating our patients with heart failure because of our drugs that reduce kidney function as well, um, although they preserve them in the longer term. But I think it's worth mentioning also that these drugs preserved uh, EGFR in patients with heart failure. 
Um, so I think it's fair to say that you know, we need to consider side effects and safety, of course, in terms of the SGLT2s as well. David, let me come to you first. What do you take into account in terms of safety when prescribing an SGLT2, perhaps differentiating between people with and people without type 2 diabetes? Yeah, for sure. So um, it, it generally is very, um, very easy to start SGLT2 inhibitors. And um, so the things to take into consideration from a safety perspective in people with diabetes, if they have very tight glycemic control or there is a concern about hypoglycemia and they're on insulin or a cell funnel urea, then it is worthwhile considering about if you can, if you have to or should back off on their insulin or, or their cell funnel urea, which can cause hypoglycemia if glycemic control is too tight. So that's one thing to consider. Um, and then two is about blood pressure. In most patients, we don't have to do anything with their background therapies. Um, but if patients are, are overtly hypotensive or volume depleted, then it's worthwhile thinking about either backing off or stopping medi medications such as a diuretic or a calcium channel blocker that's not having any end organ protection benefit, and then starting the SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, and then in terms of other um, potential side effects, uh, it's important to think about genital mycotic infections, especially in women, um, and to counsel around that as well as the management um, of that not serious but more common side effect and then finally, it's also important what not to be worried about. So we do not have to be worried about acute kidney injury because SGLT2 inhibitors reduce the risk of acute kidney injury by about 20%. And we learned that quite definitively from the meta-analysis that I mentioned before. And then also the risk of hyperkalemia, which is lower. It's attenuated with SGLT2 inhibitors. It's reduced by about 15 to 20% in terms of the risk of serious hyperkalemia with a K of five and a half or six or greater. So um, these therapies kind of act like as a release valve for the kidney when potassium reaches a certain threshold of around five and a half or six, then the naturesis with SGLT2 inhibitors is permissive as a, as a caluretic or potassium excretion, excretion mechanism, which prevents the risk of serious hyperkalemia. And I think one of the real key messages that I always try and get across is that education at an early stage at the outset about genital hygiene can just make so much difference. Agreed. Now, Pani, I'm just going to come to you briefly, if I may, uh, because, of course, again, same drugs, therefore similar side effects, but with heart failure, often perhaps really quite frail elderly patients. Yes, so... A very uh, pertinent point. So particularly our patients with preserved ejection fraction or mildly reduced ejection fraction after tend to be older patients with more core morbidities that you may worry about these things. But actually, um, we've performed a few analyses looking at uh, older patients. And indeed, in our meta-analysis, we looked at the subgroup by age, no difference in efficacy, uh, no, no increasing in rates of uh, adverse events by age compared to um, uh, placebo. So I don't think that's something to worry about. And in fact, you can calculate frailty for the patients who are in the heart failure trials and show that the benefits the same, whether the patient's frail or not frail. Um, so I, again, I don't take those two things into consideration when thinking about uh, prescribing an SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, and they certainly do not deter me from prescribing an SGLT2 inhibitor to my patients with heart failure. That is a really important point. So how have you two changed your approach to your patients 
David, come to you first with CKD in the last few years. Yeah, so the the approach to CKD in my practice has become uh, uh, more uh, more flexible in terms of the range of GFR that we uh, use to identify patients who may res- who may benefit from SGLT2 inhibitors, and of course from novel therapies as well, such as the non-steroidal MRAs. Um, and uh, so the thresholds have changed down to lower levels of GFR and including patients with any range of albuminuria in the lower range of GFR. We have to get our patients away from thinking one drug or the other, and we have to think about one drug plus the other, plus the next, plus the next, as we do in many other conditions which require multiple therapies, blood pressure, for example, and to take a a multidisciplinary approach around uh, collaboration with primary care, uh, with endocrine colleagues around pr- uh, control of obesity and uh, hyperglycemia, as well as control of cardiovascular risk factors in, in, in a very, uh, in a very uh, uh, keen and aggressive way to control cardiovascular and kidney risk factors, all of which often overlap. So that's how it's evolved in my practice. Thank you very much indeed. So, Pardeep, of course, you have been taking an additive approach in heart failure, I think, for for rather more years, perhaps, than we have in CKD. But how has your approach to patients with heart failure changed in the last few years? I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. That's probably the biggest change that's actually happening now in heart failure is we are moving away from this sequential additional step-by-step, add one therapy, then wait, then add another, to really talking about a foundation of therapies that we need to start the patient on and get that good solid foundation on which to build the other therapies that are available to us. So we start all of the drugs much earlier now, including SGLT2 inhibitors. And then the other big, I think, change happening in the heart failure world is moving away from an ejection fraction centric view of heart failure. So coming back around to this idea that heart failure is a syndrome that uh, happens to patients regardless of their ejection fraction. And indeed, when we look at analyses of the clinical trials of the SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure, we see the benefit is the same across the entire ejection fraction spectrum. So there's some quite big changes around how we think about heart failure and how we now translate that into the management of heart failure. And certainly from the primary care perspective, my attitude to treatments has also changed dramatically. And I think this idea of introducing the foundational therapies has made a real difference. I'm therefore a complete convert. What about you two? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Here, here. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Sarah Jarvis, a family doctor in the United Kingdom, and I am delighted to be welcoming you to the third part of this panel discussion activity on changing patient trajectories in chronic kidney disease and heart failure. And I am delighted to welcome back my colleagues from the University of Toronto in Toronto, the nephrologist, David Cherney, and from the University of Glasgow in Glasgow, United Kingdom, Pardeep Jund our cardiologist colleague. So just to remind you, we have in our first activity gone on a journey with one of our patients. So in the first part, as I say, we talked about our individual approaches to a patient who presents to primary care with all 
the risk factors. And I know you've all got lots of patients like this. This was Amelia. She had all the risk factors for CKD and heart failure. She's relatively young, 54, and yet she's already got hypertension. She's living with obesity and she's got pre-diabetes. It gets worse though. Both her parents got type 2 diabetes as well as cardiovascular and kidney disease. But if we look at her results, she's got a blood pressure of 146 over 90. She's got a waist circumference of 41 inches. Her EGFR is 65. More of that in just a moment. And as I mentioned, her HbA1c is 6.2%. So David, let's think multidisciplinary. What can we do to pull her back from this precipice, this yawning precipice, which means that she is completely convinced she has no choice but to go the way of her parents? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of areas to focus on, and, and her blood pressure should for sure be less than 130 over 80, and possibly even lower than that. Um, her BMI is too high, and that should be focused on as well to reduce her risk of pre-diabetes progressing to diabetes, as well as to reduce her blood pressure and reduce her metabolic parameters. Her GFR may very well be normal uh, for her. It would be interesting to see what it was in the past and to have previous values. Um, but uh, so, so that is a bit of a question mark for me in terms of the trend over time. Um, and uh, her A1C, from my perspective, is also too high and puts her at very high risk of, of progressing to frank diabetes. And then finally, from, a, from, from a, a, a renal risk perspective, she's clearly at high risk in terms of her family history. And that also is something that needs to be considered in terms of her future risk and also how intensely we should try to control her, her lifestyle and to reverse this process that seems to be uh, putting her at very high risk of cardiovascular and kidney disease. And then there are many cardiovascular issues, which I, which I won't comment on. I'll, I'll uh, step aside for, uh, for Pardeep. Yeah, so uh, very much the same things as David's mentioned, because all of these risk factors are common to both chronic kidney disease and heart failure as well, or any cardiovascular disease, in fact. I think this patient nicely highlights the problem is that the, neither, not, none of these risk factors on their own are particularly terrible. You know, we've all seen much worse blood pressure, much higher cholesterol but it's the fact that she has all of these than the pre-diabetes on top of it all. That's the, the dangerous part for a patient like this. And I think why they tend to slip under the radar a little bit because on their own, they don't look so bad if you just look at the blood pressure or you just look at the cholesterol. But when you take the total patient in view, um, which I hope we all do much better now, you can see that this patient's at very high risk of adverse cardiovascular kidney outcomes in the future. I don't just want her urine ACR. I want an ABPM or a home blood pressure monitoring as well to get a better indication. Now, of course, if she has got a raised urine ACR, then technically she could have stage two chronic kidney disease, in which case, of course, we would usually be considering um, an SGLT2, depending on the level of urine ACR. So, you know, at that point, that might fundamentally here change what we offer this patient. I'd be thinking about motivational interviewing. If we do start medications, then certainly shared decision making is going to make a big difference in getting her on board because you make a really good point, Padeep, that, you know, she probably feels okay. 
And that's a very good point, sir. I mean, that's a challenge of prevention for all of us. So uh, really trying to get the patient buy-in is where you make the big inroads here in this patient. What medications, David, would you be thinking at lo- of looking at at this stage? Yeah, so in terms of the the issues that I would that would probably be asked to control or address, really be her blood pressure. So uh, blood pressure would be uh, a focus for me and would include probably treatment given her pre-diabetes with an ACE or ARB. Um, and that would also depend on, of course, what her albuminuria was. And then also think about other therapies that she might need. And she'll almost certainly need more than one, more than one agent, possibly a diuretic on top of that to, to activate the RAS inhibitor. And especially if she has albuminuria, reduce the albuminuria. Um, and uh, then control her cardiovascular risk factors too. And would also consider uh, therapies that address the entire picture, including if lifestyle modification cannot cause weight loss, then thinking about other therapies that contribute or help with weight loss, such as incretin-based therapies, for example. So I think there's a lot of room to move here, but that'll depend on some of the additional workup um, and uh, what some of the additional biochemistry shows. So, you know, we all know what should happen. In reality, she gets lost to follow up. She returns four years later and she's now progressed and she has got CKD and ah, she's got type 2 diabetes. So from my perspective, I think, you know, this is really, this is really bad news. This is a lady who has lost 16 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared in her EGFR over the course of four years. So that's four per year. That's really bad news. She's progressed rapidly to type 2 diabetes. She's been living in a glucotoxic environment for years. She's almost certainly got end organ damage. So again, we really need to think about getting her on board and getting her motivated. But David, let me come to you first about her EGFR, because having seen her previous result, you know, this is really, really quite worrying, isn't it? With her urine ACL, we don't know what it was before, but presumably it was significantly lower than this. And if we try to extrapolate or think forward in the future, if she's losing four mils per minute per year, then if you look forward five years, she maybe have lost 20 mils or more, which will put her in the CKD stage four range. So she's really advancing very quickly. And she needs and our, her team needs to act very quickly to intervene and slow that rate of progression, recognizing that SGL2 inhibitors slow renal function decline, and they have all the other benefits that we've covered in other sessions. So in thinking about what to do with her, she should for sure be on uh, lifestyle modification, as we've discussed previously. She should also be on first-line therapy with, uh, with metformin a RAS inhibitor, an SGLT2 inhibitor, and, and a moderate high-intensity statin as, as, as basic therapies to help control her renal function loss, reduce her albuminuria, control her blood pressure, control her glycemic uh, 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 burden, and she'll for sure need additional therapies on top of that, but that's the, that's the starting point uh, that we should at least consider during this visit. So, Paddy... <laughs> Her cardiovascular risk is really a major cause of concern too. It's not just her kidneys. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we now quite clearly have her her blood pressure is up um, and needs to be lowered uh, given her her diabetes, uh, her cholesterol as well. We've now got her LDL is 3.15 millimoles or 122 milligrams per deciliter, so not ideal. Um, So all of these these, uh, risk factors 
need to be addressed as well as her as well as her um, diabetes because really again it's that combination of all of these that's really going to mean that this lady runs into trouble in the future we really need to start aggressively treating this lady to try and get those risk factors under control it's it's managing those risk factors um, that then is the way that we prevent heart failure from occurring in the future Okay, so in the previous activity, we followed our patient out to age 70 and she developed heart failure with a left ventricular ejection fraction of 39%. Pardeep, could this development have been prevented with earlier intervention? Yes, we, we hope for, for many patients now there are options there where aggressive risk factor management could potentially prevent the onset of, of heart failure later in life as unfortunately happened to our patient. As with everything, it's about talking to the patient, educating them, giving them information in a format that they can understand and allowing them to ask questions and involving them in that decision-making process so that they can help to understand why we're considering a medication and why we think they need to take that medication, often lifelong, without any obvious benefit day-to-day -to, -day to them um, when they're, they're taking this tablet every day. So from my point of view, I think in patient engagement, talking to them, making them understand what's going on and why you're doing it, actually nine times out of 10, you, you end up um, with a place where both of you are in agreement that this is something that you should do. And one of the things I think I find particularly useful is really getting under the skin of what their priorities are. It's sometimes really surprising. You know, if I've got a patient, David, who's got rapidly progressing CKD, I would assume that their biggest concern was ending up on dialysis. But actually, it often isn't. So it's both about uh, thinking about uh, symptoms and control of symptoms. It's about safety and and uh, explaining what the things are to watch for when starting a new therapy. And it's also about the anticipated benefits. Um, I'll often give numbers of how much of a benefit I expect them to get based on a trial, how much of a percent reduction in the risk of dialysis or transplant they can expect to get, or keeping patients out of hospital if they've been hospitalized for heart failure can be very motivating and can also put the, the benefits of these therapies in very real terms that are very abstract otherwise, and that can help with, uh, with buy-in and, and engagement in what the plan might be for a patient. So for instance, we, don't, we shouldn't be talking about um, relative risk reductions. We should always talk about absolute risk reductions, and we should try and put it into terms that the patient can understand, ideally in a defined time frame. So you know, if you take this, if, if 100 people took this medication over the course of three years, then actually we could stop five of them from ending up with heart failure or dead. So moving forwards, how can we make the most of the foundational therapies and the opportunities that we have now for managing CKD? David, let me come to you first. So I think we can make uh, sure that we're screening, identifying patients in an, in an organized way and on a regular basis, according to guidelines, make sure that we don't miss these patients uh, based on their level of kidney function in albuminuria, for example, in my practice, or based on their heart failure risk in Pardeep's practice, et cetera. Um, and that once we identify patients who have an indication for a therapy, 
based on foundational uh, therapies or on the therapies that we then uh, add on top as pillars that we implement those therapies whenever possible. Here, here. Pardeep, anything to add? No, I just, I think it's such an important message that I'm going to repeat David's message again, that really we have to implement these therapies. These therapies are no use being a box and a guideline or a paper in a journal um, or um, a slide talking point at a conference. The therapies are only useful when the physicians out there use them to treat the patients. And that's when we make the difference. And the only thing I have to add to that is that you can only implement the guidelines if you've found the patient. So screening is absolutely key. David's made a wonderful point about doing routine, systematic screening. But of course, we can also do opportunistic screening as well when a patient is sitting in front of us. I want to thank my esteemed colleagues for sharing their insights and expertise today. I do hope that you, our audience, will find this useful as you care for your own patients. Please do be sure to have a look for the first activity in this series where we follow a patient on her journey and we review a lot more. We've just given you a taste today of key points of intervention from our individual perspectives. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.